Exodus 19, starting at verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is, what I, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of, the mount of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they did not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down, and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Okay, morning church. If you can keep your Bibles open in that section, 
Um, if you haven't met me before, my name's Darcy. I'm one of the people who attend this church. And actually, youth church, if you're normally going, you, you normally go out with me sometimes and listen to me nerd out of the Bible um, in another room. But you're going to get to stay today and listen to me nerd out in here with the rest of you, with your parents, because youth church's not happening in the holidays here. Um, how about I pray and um, we'll get into things. Um, Lord, I pray that as we open your word today in Exodus 19, we might have uh, ears to hear your voice, just as as the Israelites heard your voice on the mount today. Amen. Now, apologies for those who might know me best and kind of saw this coming. Um, In the final scenes of the movie The Dark Knight, Commissioner Gordon says to Harvey Dent, that he is the hero Gotham needs, but not the one that they deserve. Then he turns to his son and he says about Batman that Batman is the hero that Gotham deserves, but not the one that they need right now. Actually, if you ask me, it's kind of the wrong way around. Batman has really always been the hero that Gotham needs, but doesn't deserve, not Harvey Dent. Gotham City needed a hero like Batman because Gotham City has always been this corrupt city unable to fix themselves. A city that breeds villains because of its corrupt nature and its inclination towards insanity. Batman has endured all the pain of a corrupt city that would throw at him. All the times they've hated him, they've hunted him, they've taken bribes and skimmed off the top because even though they knew it was wrong, it was just easier than doing the right thing. And Batman's there the whole time, serving the people who don't actually deserve his help, even sacrificing his own happiness, which could have been very potentially happy as a billionaire. He sacrifices that life in order to serve the people of Gotham. Not that they deserved it. He is definitely the hero that they need, but not the ones that they deserve. Now, why I open with an analogy of Batman other than I really like Batman is because Exodus 19 and 20 is going to be a story about a leader that Israel needs but doesn't really deserve. Okay? Israel needs a mediator between them and God, but they don't deserve him. Today we're going to see one of the main reasons why that's the case in this story. This story in Exodus 19 of going up on the mountain and hearing God's word is actually perhaps the most significant story after the plague story that happens in Israel's early history times. And what I want to do today is kind of open with a bit of a summary of Exodus 19 and the narrative that's there, briefly look at just three of the Ten Commandments that are there and why the, those three particularly are important, but off, and then before trying to kind of puzzle together the sort of the mystery of Exodus 19 and 20 together, and see why it's here in the narrative, and why it leads me to the conclusion of, thank God for Moses, right? So let's begin. In the start of Exodus 19, we're told that the Israelites finally come to Mount Sinai. This is the same place that God met with Moses in the burning bush, and he speaks with him there. And we're told near the end of chapter 20 that this is actually a test, Moses says to the people, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Okay? Moses has been kind of this go-between guy between Israel and Yahweh for a while. 
but here he really has to go between over and over and over because he spends a lot of chapter 19 delivering messages between the two of them. He goes up the mountain to speak with God and he comes down the mountain to deliver the message to the people and then he goes back up the mountain again to deliver their message back to God again. And it's quite a lot of climbing for an 80-year-old guy to do. In fact, I was only just thinking yesterday, uh, Joe Biden's 78. Imagine him climbing up and down the mountain over and over. It actually gets kind of hard to track exactly where Moses is at times because of all the going up and down. In fact, what we kind of see is that Moses has kind of become this love messenger between Yahweh and Israel. It's almost like he's the friend in primary school who's going out to ask the girl whether she'll go out with his friend, you know. In verse 5 of chapter 19, we read that God says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is kind of like a marriage proposal. Yahweh has brought his people out of Egypt And he's shown them what he's like through the way that he's brought them out of Egypt and the way that he's brought them out of slavery under Pharaoh. And he's brought them through the Red Sea and he's brought them through the wilderness and fed them in the desert. And now he's proposing to them to make them into a kingdom of priests. Essentially, this kingdom of priests is meant to say that they will be his representatives here on earth to the rest of the nations, a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. And it's kind of really meant to sound like talk amongst lovers here because that's really what it is. It's God is preparing Israel like a bride that he now wants to enter into a covenant relationship with, which is why he calls them his treasured possession. It's really meant to sound like sweet nothings between lovers. So how does Israel respond to God's proposal? Let's read in verse 7, chapter 19 still. So Moses came and called the elders and the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, they said yes. Israel agrees to this marriage proposal. And so now Moses kind of lays out the terms of the covenant and he explains, after going up and down the mountain a couple more times, that the Israelites need to do a few things in preparation. They need to consecrate themselves for three days. They need to wash their clothes. They're not to have any sex, and they are not to touch the mountain. They're not to touch this holy mountain where God is. I want to spend a little bit extra time on this issue of not touching the mountain because it's clearly the part that God is most adamant about in in the preparation period before they go up the mountain. And mostly because the people are not to touch the mountain until the trumpet sounds. You see in verse 13, you see this in verse 13, but before I get to it, we need to do a little nerdy text criticism here. And I was thinking you'd probably be really fired up for this sort of thing because I get really fired up for this sort of thing. So uh, let's get into a bit of nerdy text criticism here. Uh, Verse 13, the issue is all your major translations, your ESV, your NIV, your King James, they will translate verse 13 uh, of chapter 19 
this way. They'll translate it as something like, when the trumpet sounds, the people shall come up to the mountain. Okay? The NIV actually uses the word ascend the mountain. And it means come up to as if stand up at the base of the mountain, right? That's the sense you get of it. But actually the Hebrew words here, literally word for word, are that when the trumpet sounds, the people shall come up onto the mountain. Not stand at the base, but actually come up onto the the mountain, but only when the trumpet actually sounds. The words are actually Hamar Ya'Allah Baha, and that Ya'Allah means ascend. That word in the middle means ascend. I don't know the Hebrew, but I'm really good at using the Blue Letter Bible Concordance online. If anyone's interested, go and have a look at the Blue Letter Bible um, Concordance online. It's really helpful if you want to understand Hebrew words. And the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, and the Holman Version, they are the only versions that I've found actually do translate this word for word here. They actually have go up onto the mountain. And they translate that Allah as literally ascend the mountain. Now, the difference is only really small here. It's only the difference of actually one Hebrew letter. But it kind of changes the instruction considerably because was Israel meant to come up to the base of the mountain or were they meant to come up onto the mountain? We'll actually see why later in the later throughout the sermon here why some of the translations are translating it come up to the mountain but it's important to note that the literal translation here is come up onto the mountain so they come up onto the mountain but only when the trumpet sound that's the instruction only when the trumpet sounds and the trumpet this is a pretty standard symbol for the pronouncement of a king in this case it's the king of kings and what the Israelites see as, as they look at the mountain, well, it's intense to say least, kind of like the kids talk earlier. Let's read in verse, nine, in verse 16 of 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So this is a pretty intense scene. Uh, I'm not sure if you'd be willing to walk up into a furnace, into a mountain that's on fire. We're kind of used to imagining or seeing snow-capped mountains. We don't have too many in Australia, but the idea is usually snow-capped mountains, not furnace-capped mountains, fire-capped mountains. Like, that's a kind of scary image to go up into. It's no wonder that they're shaking and trembling, right? And the whole, in fact, the whole earth is shaking. The mountain is shaking. The horn is blowing. It's getting louder and louder and smoke and lightning and thunder. And actually that Hebrew word thunder, it's actually the same word that means voice. Throughout the Bible, this word, the word is coal, if you wanted to know, but the the word actually is used only 10 times to mean thunder, but 383 times to mean the word voice. The word for thunder is actually the same word for voice here in Hebrew. And that's kind of the point of why the narrator uses this word specifically, because 
God's voice is a thunderous voice. It's kind of saying that the thunder is God's voice. So they're the same thing. Now, what the Israelites actually heard in this section is debated. Some actually think that they heard something that sounded like thunder, and others actually say that they hear a thunderous type of voice. I tend to agree with the thunderous type of voice point of view. But what's also debated is that what the voice is actually saying. The prominent thinking is that what the voice is actually saying here to the Israelite people is the Ten Commandments, since that's actually what we get next in the narrative with chapter 20. Now, possibly they heard a thunderous type voice which was not recorded for us, and then Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments there. Possibly that's how it happens. But I tend to agree that most likely what they're hearing here is the pronouncement of the Ten Commandments from the mountain. It's the first laws given to Israel. This is the first time you encounter anything, anything like Israelite Old Testament law in, throughout your Bible if you've been reading since Genesis up to Exodus. And the Ten Commandments is kind of like an overview of the law for the, to Israel. But it's also really the first time we're seeing the God who demands. He has been the God who delivers. Now he is demanding that the Israelites follow his ways. He has delivered his people up to Mount Sinai. And now for the first time, he is demanding the set terms of his covenant. Actually, this is quite revolutionary for people in ancient times because if you're a pagan worshipper in in people in ancient times you're kind of just mostly guessing at what your god really needs you know you're, you're mostly guessing at what the god of the harvest or god of the rains or god of fertility really wants to try and appease those gods and do whatever it is and one year you might actually sacrifice a calf to say let's uh, say Osiris and you get a good harvest that year but then the next year you sacrifice a calf to Osiris and you don't get so much good of a car uh, uh, so, so much good of a harvest and you're a bit confused like what what is it that this god really wants this is really revolutionary because here we're hearing from god himself the people all the people at least in this situation are hearing specific demands from god and exactly how they are meant to relate to him. That's really revolutionary for people in ancient times. It's kind of revolutionary for us today even. Hearing God's words specifically, whether he's happy, sad, angry, you know, whatever it is, and hearing that and knowing what, he's, what he wants, that's, that's really revolutionary. Now I want to briefly go over uh, three of the commandments that we're going to see in chapter 20 there. Because, well, this part of the story, these are, the, these are kind of the commandments that the Israelites will actually break when they go and they make the golden calf, which is kind of the next story in the series. We get the Ten Commandments here, then we get 42 other laws, and then we get the story about the golden calf. And we're going to see that when they get this, this golden calf story, they're going to break these first three of the Ten Commandments here. That's why I want to give you a little overview of just these first three. Um, We're going to see that actually that's kind of a pattern for the Israelite people, that they will actually get a set of laws and then immediately break those in the very next story. So let's let's look at commandment number one. Commandment number one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we mostly think of this law in that sense of type of like priority, 
God should be number one in our list of gods. Or maybe he should be like second to none in our list of priorities. He should be the priority above all other priorities here. Have no other gods before me. But we kind of need to remember the second real meaning for this word before because I think it's just as important to realize that before could also mean place no other gods in front of me. Remember, it's at the base of the mountain where the Israelites are worshipping the golden calf, right in front of Yahweh on the top of the mountain. And so putting no other gods before me is kind of like, don't worship another god in front of me. Don't place another idol to another uh, to, a, to a pagan god in front of me. That's really going to peeve me off. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Again, Israel breaks this commandment immediately with the golden calf story. But actually, God actually says not to carve an image of anything on earth, on in heaven, sorry, in heaven, on earth, or, un, or the seas under the earth. Which to a per- person in ancient times, these are kind of the three realms of being. In ancient times throughout the, throughout the earth, they kind of thought of the earth on these pillars with the sea underneath the pillars and around the earth and then also this kind of dome above which holds back the, the waters above. In fact, if you're interested, put in your Google Images search, Biblical Cosmology, and you'll get a kind of Im- image representation, possibly like the one on the screen you might see soon. Um, this is kind of the three realms of being for ancient people in those times. And so mentioning the heavens, the earth, and the seas under the earth, that's like all of the earth, right? In fact, I think there's really a deeper reason why they're not to make an image of God here. It's because, well, God already made something in his image. It's us. We're made in God's image, and so we're not meant to carve anything in God's image because we are his image. Not anything that we can build, we're meant to be that image of God here on earth. All right, commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Actually, a better rendering of this word actually might be you shall not carry the name of your Lord in vain. Because we tend to think of this commandment as don't use God's name as a swear word. But actually it's more than just using it as a swear word. It's saying that you have God's name on you. You are carrying God's name. Don't do that in vain. Don't do that with a futile purpose. If you're going to carry God's word, carry it with a true purpose, with a good purpose, one that serves him. You are his people made in his image. Carry his name and carry it well. That's really what this commandment is saying. And so we can kind of see that these three Uh, of the first commandments these are the commandments that israel break when they when they build the golden calf and they try and they worship it i think this is a big reason why these commandments are here in the story not just because they're the overview of the jewish law that's about to come but also because these are the exactly the laws that israel break in the very next story that comes this is just like adam and eve after getting the instruction in their garden and then immediately breaking it this is the pattern that we're seeing in israel throughout the generations of getting an instruction and immediately breaking that instruction but now if the israelites 
are hearing the Ten Commandments when they're hearing God's voice on the mountain, or even if it is that they're hearing some sort of thunderous voice and then later they're getting those Ten Commandments, what is their reaction to this experience? What is their reaction? Well, we actually can read this in um, chapter 20 of verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're scared. They hear God's thunderous words and they tremble and ask that Moses be the one to speak to them and keep being the messenger boy that he has been. Okay, so now that we know their reaction is that they fear God's voice and that they fear God, the question really is, is this what they were supposed to do or not? Is this them passing or failing the test? Because there's kind of two ways that you can really see what's happening here. Either they were supposed to come up to the edge of the mountain and God's word was supposed to scare them and put that literal fear of God in them, so much so that they might rightly ask for a mediator between God and man. Or they were supposed to come up onto the mountain and they didn't And they heard God's word and then they were even more afraid of him. And so Moses has to continue to be this mediator between man and God. Not because he had to, but because they had a missed opportunity here to hear it from themselves. Do you know the interesting thing about reading and seeing these two ways you can interpret this is that reading other parts of the Bible actually doesn't make things any more super clearer for you. Uh, as I found out in preparing for this sermon. We can read in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, for example, this section kind of deals with chapter 19 and 20 together, as well as parts of 24, and talks about the whole event together. When we read in Deuteronomy 5, God is saying here, the Lord heard, sorry, verse 28, if you're following along, the Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what the people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and the children and their children forever. It seems to me in Deuteronomy here that God seems to think that asking for a mediator was a good response. In fact, the right response to a scary holy God who an unholy people is now approaching that they should rightly ask for a mediator and Moses to be this mediator. Perhaps Israel has passed this test. Perhaps realizing that they need a mediator was the the point here. But we also read in other parts of the Bible, say in Hebrews, where the Hebrew writer accounts this event, and he actually writes a little differently in chapter 3, of 7 to 8 of Hebrews, he says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. So was this a hardening of Israel's heart when they heard God's voice? And actually, even if we look at the events themselves in Exodus 19, it's recorded to us that the horn grew louder and louder because... 
maybe we're supposed to be thinking here, Israelites are supposed to be going up on the mountain and they're not doing that. The horn is growing louder and louder and what, what happens is Moses steps up and he speaks to God. Was this the moment where they were supposed to go up and hear God's word and, and start to, to build that covenant relationship with him face to face? So the question is, do they really pass or fail this test? This is why I believe we can account for those differences in the translations here, why the ESV and the NIV and the King James have translated and interpreted this verse 13, even though it's not literally what it says. They're trying to make sense of the story here, and they're actually seeing that God actually asked them to set limits around the mountain anyway, and so that's why they've rendered this verse slightly different. So maybe actually they did intend to actually not only come up to the base of the mountain, Honestly, over this month, in preparing for this sermon, I've been fully convinced that they didn't pass the test and fully convinced that they did. I feel like I've been reading one, one commentator and another commentator and flicking back and forth, and honestly, I don't really know exactly. Maybe with another month of research, I might be able to tell you more accurately what I think, whether they pass or fail. I'm not really sure. Maybe you've got your interpretation too. But actually, I realize that it doesn't actually matter whether they pass or fail the test because they kind of get the same result either way. Moses is still the go-between between between Israel and God. Whether Israel rightly or wrongly stayed where they were and didn't come close to God, Moses has become still the go-between between God and his people. He is still the mediator, rightly or wrongly, which is super important because as we read later in the story, God will get so angry with them after the golden calf incident that he is going to actually kill the people and Moses steps in and saves them and asks that he be killed instead of the people. Well, thank God for Moses here. Thank God that they had someone like Moses who can still be that mediator between them because clearly they still needed him, rightly or wrongly. Without him, they would have been lost. Without him, they would have been killed. Without him, they wouldn't have had somebody who could step in and offer his own life instead of the people. And this is where it's not really hard for us to see the implication to us today because we are a people who need a mediator between God and us. We're a sinful people needing a mediator to go up on the mountain and to offer his life in our place. Our mountain actually isn't Mount Mount Sinai, though. It's Mount Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. The word Zion actually means parched place. And so we are a people who live in a place without water, looking to the tree of life, the one from which all other streams flow to the rest of the world. Hopefully there'll be a slide up for you, a picture of a tree. Yep. I was fishing earlier this year with my friends and uh, I had to stop and take a photo of this um, tree that I was coming across as I was fishing because uh, it sort of stuck in my memory and it's not exactly a stream flowing out from the tree but it was kind of amazing to me that there was this tree growing in the middle of this very fast flowing river. Probably the river was usually lower at other parts of the year and so it was able to get more of a purchase on the ground and actually grow but at this time it looked like literally a tree growing out of the river and it was this beautiful image to me 
of a tree on Mount Zion bringing the water to the people in the parched place. Now at this stage I could actually go to Galatians 4 and I could draw out for you that we're not under law but we're under the promise. And if indeed you're inclined to read some more around this Exodus story, please go and have a look at Galatians 21 to 31, uh, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, because there is some important parts there to, be no- to notice. But I actually want to land here in Hebrews instead, because this verse that I'm about to read is so significant to the way that we ought to read this story of Exodus, this side of the cross. This verse is actually explaining to those who follow Christ, how Jesus is that new and better Moses. It's in, ex, in, sorry, it's in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, if you want to read along with me. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire or darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I shall not only, sorry, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is created, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God accepting acceptably with reverence and awe and awe for our god is a consuming fire that verse was really actually so powerful to me in preparing for this sermon for t- today because it really summarizes all the events of 19 and 20 i hope you noticed all the little parts of the story coming through not only does it summarize it it points us to a new and better moses it points us to jesus And under Jesus, a new and better covenant that cannot be shaken, unlike the mountain of Sinai. It points us to a people who are also sinful, to which God himself speaks to, and to which he has written their name on their foreheads. A people to which his laws are on their minds and on their hearts. A kingdom of priests. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus then that's you. We are that kingdom of priests here. We are the kingdom of priests to the rest of the nations, the ones who are following Christ through the wilderness, just as those followed Moses through the wilderness. 
Thank God for Moses, but thank God for, for Jesus even more. For without him as our mediator, we too would be killed by God's anger. We too would be destroyed when we heard God's word and immediately turned to do the opposite thing. When we choose to go our own way instead of listening to him and doing what he's asked us to do, that's us turning away and immediately going our own way against him, against his instructions. I know that Jesus is not the hero that I deserve, but he is for sure the one that I need. So the word for you guys and for myself today from this passage that we've looked at over this week, well, it's actually the words from Hebrews 3, 7 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to actually ask that if you heard God's word today as we open the scriptures together, or if you're at home or with others and you open the word and you hear God's word speaking to you then, that you would not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion, but it would be softened and it would be changed by him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you a people who do not deserve you, an unholy people who cannot come near to you. But we thank you that because Jesus has been that mediator, we can know you. We can speak with you. We can hear your words. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear your words, our hearts might be changed by it. Our hearts might be inclined towards you rather than our own ways. Forgive us when we do follow our own ways. And please help us to learn and to know what it is like to know you personally. Amen.